Mark, I was re-watching The Wolf of Wall Street just the other day, really? and I thought to myself, yes, wouldn't it be good to make all that money without doing, you know, all that bad stuff? Well, it certainly would, Simon, without the bad stuff. Yes. Well, Mark, after the film finished, I hopped onto the internet, as you do, and I found this site called Shopify. Have you heard of Shopify? I think I might have done, but tell me. Well, Shopify is the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, or grow your own business. Yes, I have heard of Shopify. It's the commerce platform revolutionising millions of businesses worldwide. That's right. Whether you're selling Danish pastries or cherry wine, Lovely. Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can successfully grow your business. Full of the industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without learning new skills in design or coding. And what's lovely about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify will be there to empower you with the confidence and control to take your business to the next level. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash Kermode. Hello? Not mayo. All lowercase. Go to shopify.co.uk slash Kermode. Take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.co.uk slash Kermode. Something wrong here. Without mayo. The exciting information Mm -hmm. which we can uh, bring to you is... Oh, there's exciting information. When... We go on holiday next, or more particularly, you go on holiday next. Mm-hmm. The next person who can basically do your job, right? We, uh, well, is you know he has. Hang re- on, am I being fired? He has revealed himself to us. But what, like the Lord? Yes. <laughs> uh, okay. He's our taxi driver who we have. Oh, this I see. Right. Because <laughs> he has, he has the gift. <laughs> he has the definitely gift. has the gift. Wow! It was. Performance art was the phrase that you used. Yes, absolutely. absolutely, it was performance art. Anyway, so wh- whilst he's not here, we we might as well get on and explain what's okay. on the show. So, what are you going to be uh, reviewing I'm in going the to, review section of this podcast? I'm going to be reviewing uh, Argyle, which is a new film by Matthew Vaughan, uh, The Zone of Interest, which is a new film by Jonathan Glazer, and American Fiction with, with our, our special guest, guest Jeffrey Wright. But the but the thing is, we haven't done the I haven't done the interview yet. Yeah. That's going to be done tomorrow. So, uh, which is fine. So, Mark. So you exactly as normal. You will hear a conversation with Jeffrey Wright, assuming everything happens fine. Yes. And then you'll hear Mark reviewing. It's just that Mark won't have heard the Jeffrey Wright interview. And just to be clear, you won't have to wait until tomorrow to hear this because by the time you hear this, it'll be the day after tomorrow. By That's which right. point the interview will have happened. But when we talk about the film. I won't have heard the interview That's because right. it won't have happened yet. But by that time, our taxi driver will have just finished <laughs> his anecdote about how he's a psychic. About how his boot opened in Hendon. Yes. But he went to the police station and they had the folder with all the passports in it. Also, uh, uh, we're hoping Killian Murphy's going to be on this here uh, take because um, of the fact that that last film he did, did quite well yes. and he's quite good. I think his career really took off after you and I interviewed him. He won't. He definitely won't remember that. He will, he because you talked him won't. into a corner. You said, are you in the new Batman? And he said, I can't say anything about it. You said, are you in the new Batman? He said, I can't say anything about it. And you said, are you in the new Batman? He said, look, I've signed a piece of paper. You said, so you are in the new Batman. And he went, 
Oh. But he won't remember that, guaranteed. But anyway, we will. We'll, well, we'll find out. Uh, also, in, in our uh, extra takes, which have uh, also uh, appeared, the weekend watch list, not list. Take it or leave it, you decide. What are we going to be doing um, with this one? We are also... Oh, for take it or leave it, you yes. decide we're going to be doing uh, True Detective Night Country. This is my introduction to True Detective. I haven't seen any of the first three okay. series. This is the fourth series starring Jodie Foster. Um, Days of Heaven, Migration, bonus reviews, I believe. Yes, yeah, so Days of Heaven is the reissue of the Terence Malick and Migration is a new animation. Mark's favourite feature, Plot Smash. Um, I think he'll get lots of stars um, for that. I'm doing all right with that so far. I think you definitely are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Apple Podcasts uh, is where you can access everything. Or you can go to extratakes.com for non-fruit-related devices. Also, before we get into the show, a brief public announcement to say we are back on everyone's favourite film-related social platform, Letterboxd. No E at the end. Follow us at Kermode and Mayo, and you can track all the films we review each week, as well as your suggestions. And Mark's pick for One Frame Back and a list of Mark's films of the week for 2024. So that's on Letterboxd, Mark. Make yeah. sure you follow that. And just to say, um, if you find somebody on Letterboxd called Mark Kermode, it's not me. Who is it? No idea. It's not me. Right, so it's Kermode and Mayo is what you want. Kermode and Mayo is fine, because I think that right. we, we run the Kermode and Mayo thing, but they, they, apparently there's somebody on Letterboxd called Mark Kermode, not me. Anyway, if you're already a Vanguard Easter, as always, we, we really do salute. We really salute. do salute you. Yes, with, with correct emphasis. Yes. Uh, Padraig Kenny says, Mark and Simon, long-term listener, second-time emailer, former winner of the Ballymore Eustace Bonnie Baby Contest in 1970 wow. <laughs> and 1971. Wow. In which case... Uh, Padraig has it, uh, he can say he is just like Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon Garfunkel, because... which was the best selling album in 1970 and 1971. Really? So to coincide with that, sure. um, he was the, the Bonnie Baby contest winner in those years as well. Amazing. Uh, also, the originator of the itch, stitch, twitch literary panel idea, which I pitched to Simon on a certain hell site not so long ago. Okay. I'm <laughs> writing to you regarding the subject of people becoming fully immersed in films. My favourite such moment is when my family and I went to a viewing of Paddington 2. Paddington was being led into prison. There was a hush in the cinema. Then quietly, out of the back, came a small, panicked voice of a child. Where is he? Where is he now? Is that his house? Is he in the house? I have very fond memories of... I love it when you do voices. Well, the thing is... Small child. I could have said, where is he? Where is he now? No, no, but it, was, it, was feel, it would feel inappropriate. It's like Stephen Fry doing the Harry Potter books. Well done. Thank you. Uh, I also have very fond memories of a showing of Rocky Four in my hometown of Newbridge, way back in the 80s, when the whole cinema erupted for the final bout and dozens of children started throwing punches, <laughs> cheering Rocky on. Most memorable was a kid who couldn't have been more than nine, standing on his seat, punching the air and shouting, kill him, Rocky, effing kill him. <laughs> with immersive, empathetic power of cinema and down with generally debasing effects of 90% of social media. I don't know whether you remember this, but when, you, when The Warriors first opened in the UK, it was, after, it was delayed for a while because there were all these councils saying that people would go and see The Warriors in Southgate and immediately turn into violent New York Who gangs. Yeah. yeah. And we go... It doesn't work like that. No, Southgate is always like that. <laughs> I, I can say that because I'm born. I was born in Southgate. So. I spent an awful lot of my childhood in the Southgate royalty, which then became the Southgate Pink Elephant, which was nothing like as cool. No, but no, but that's a good. I can see why people who wouldn't know what they're talking about might think that. Exactly. Yes. Uh, David in Harpenden. Um, <clears throat> Harpenden. Well, I mean, honestly, if they played the Warriors in Harpenden. 
Harpenden versus Southgate. That would be the that would be the <laughs> grudge match. Dear Murder and Dance Floor, I just wanted to share a truly life-affirming experience I had at the Picture House Central okay. in London. The occasion was a reunion with an old colleague whose relationship had been sustained, nay, blossomed over the last five years. Him in Manchester, me in Hertfordshire, by regular WhatsApps discussing what we've been watching or what's on our lists, punctuated by the odd call when time allows to check in on other matters such as work, family and general well-being. Well, Al and I, having never been to the cinema together before, had a rollicking time from agreeing on what a fresh take on the seance sub-genre talk to me was to violently disagreeing on the innumerable virtues of Paul Mescal. The evening was a powerful reminder of the connective tissue that binds us members of the church together. I've always thought of football as possibly the biggest common X going, but I'm reevaluating its status as the number of, number one social lubricant as I type. The film itself was quite the experience. It was poor things. We both came out agreeing that we needed more time to process what we'd seen, but were very glad to have seen on the big screen and found it technically very impressive. Very good. We also came to a broad consensus to meet once a quarter for communion. It made me very happy to feel I've now found my film soulmate. So I remember we had a series of emails a while back about the person that you go to the cinema with. Yes. Because you can have a cinema soulmate who might not be a soulmate in other issues, but yeah. there's the person that you go to the cinema with, yeah. which then led to people saying about how they went to the cinema on their own. And then we had a whole <laughs> sequence about young parents going with their pyjamas on. So if it was your turn, so you've got a baby, your turn to go out, you go to the cinema, you put your pyjamas on, your clothes on top, on the top then yeah. you come home and then when you get undressed, you don't have to disturb anybody because <laughs> you've already got your pyjamas on. Uh, correspondence at codeofmail.com. Thank you very much indeed for uh, all the emails. Get to as many as we can in this take and all the other takes. Uh, let's talk about a movie that is out this week. Yes, this is a film which you've seen and about which you probably know more about the subject matter than I do. So this is The Zone of Interest, which is the new film by Jonathan Glazer, who made Sexy Beast. We recently reviewed the uh, the TV series, mm -hmm. the TV prequel to Sexy Beast, which I said is very, very unlike the film Sexy Beast. Birth, Under the Skin, that extraordinary science fiction film with uh, Scarlett Johansson. This is loosely adapted from a 2014 uh, book by Martin Amis, which I haven't read. Have you read the I Martin have Amis book? Okay, fine. So Christian Friedel plays, um, correct my pronunciation, Rudolf Huss. Well, it's Rudolf Huss, yes, because it's it's an O with an umlaut. And then, because oh. a lot of people go, do you mean Rudolf Hess? You go, no, 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 completely no. different person. Rudolf Huss. Who, real life SS officer who was the longest serving commandant at Auschwitz was executed in 1947. So the film takes place around the edges of the Holocaust is the, probably a, a way of describing it. It doesn't ever take us inside the concentration camp. It takes place in this house next door to the camp, this house and garden next door to the camp where... Rudolph lives with his family. Sandra Huller, who was uh, got her first Oscar nomination for Anatomy of a Fall, so she's got a Best Actress nomination. In fact, I think she could have got a Supporting Actress nomination for this, plays his, his wife, Hedwig, who is very keen to develop and tend to the dream home in which she now lives. She's proud of her house. She's proud of the grounds. She's proud of the gardens. She wants her husband to get promotions for their social standing to increase. One day, mother comes to visit and is impressed by the house and the gardens, although alarmed by the proximity to the camp. Here's a clip. 
Das hier ist die Mauer vom Lager. Ja, ja, das ist die Lagermauer. Also da haben wir auch noch Wein gepflanzt, damit das zuwächst, damit man das nicht mehr so sieht. Vielleicht ist ja Esther Sissermann da drüben. Wer war das nochmal? Ja, die für dich geputzt hat. It's a very brief clip, but so essentially what they're standing in this garden and she's saying, so that's the camp wall. So yes, it's just there anyway. We've been doing all this sort of flowers and stuff, and but it's just there. Oh, she's just deflecting the whole time because her mum is going, really? Yeah, it's really that close. Uh, the film is up for five Oscars for Glaze of a Best Directing and Adapted Screenplay, along with Best Film, uh, International Film, and Best Sound. The sound is really important because you don't see the atrocities in the camp. You hear them. You hear them as a sort of background noise, something that's happening just beyond the edge of the frame, but you don't, you don't see it happening. Glazer has talked about this and said, it's like what's happening in the camp is almost the other film, or arguably the film, that this is all going on beyond the frame. And there's also a very, very sparse score by Mika Levy, and I love their work. I think Mika Levy is a really interesting composer. But they wrote music for the film that was then hugely pared back to the point that what we now have is a sort of prologue. We have music at the beginning and some at the end, and then we have some sort of soundscapes during the film. But the film itself isn't in any way sort of adorned by, by music. It's a very, very sparse, very bleak, very kind of chilling, you know, sound space. Um, I think for the thing that's that's really... Well, I mean, there's so many things about the film that, that make it powerful. One of the things, apparently, Jonathan Glazer set cameras in the house. He described it as, like in the way they would do in Big Brother, so that when the people were acting in the house, they, they could do a lot of it, you know, moving around quite naturally within the house. So there's almost a kind of documentary feel sometimes to the way that the acting happens. But it's also a very, very studied, very precise. The frame is very particular. The way in which things are framed, it's it's not, there's nothing kind of casual or handheld about it. It's all very, very formal. The, I think the best way of describing it is it's like it's it's like a study of looking away. It is a portrait of life going on in inverted commas normally, side by side, with something that is absolutely unspeakable. And I was reminded of I went to Berlin, I'm going to back to Berlin quite soon, the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin, which is this strange thing when you walk into it and there are these low walls, it's like a, like a maze, you walk in and, it, and it's, they, the walls are very, very low down and then suddenly the next thing you know is that the walls are really big and you're, you've, you've walked into this thing that you're completely trapped by but you almost didn't notice it was happening. And the juxtaposition of kind of quotidian life and unspeakable horror is what's happening in the film. It's also a portrait of kind of, of seeping, growing corruption that, that, you know, a man whose whole life becomes the simple mechanics of killing. And there's a scene later on in which he talks about, you know, he, he looked at a room of people and all he could think of was, you know, how how fast could they be could they be killed? And it's a film about complicity. And the I think the the fact of its horrible everyday quality makes it even makes it worse you know people talk sometimes about you know the banality of evil which is the great phrase. i don't i don't think this is the banality of evil i think it's the kind of screaming silent horror of indifference or or or, or callousness and i was reminded of when son of saul came out one of the interesting things about son of saul is 
because it's all shot in cl very close on the central actor's face, the atrocities of the camp, you do see them, but they're glimpsed at the side, they're, they're to the side of the frame. And Claude Landsman talked about how that was, a, a you know, possibly a way of, you know, the, the fact that you can approach this subject through through fiction and, and drama. And I think maybe it's, maybe you can only look at something this terrible from the side. You know, it's like sometimes you can't look at something straight on. Maybe looking to the side of it is actually more powerful. I found it very chilling. Now, you you know about the, about Huss. Yeah, at uni, I did, um, for, for one of the courses I was taking, I, re I read a book called, um, it was by Lucy Davidovitz, who's, one of, who's a great Jewish uh, historian, and it was called The War Against the Jews. And in there, it had... A lot of it had a lot of uh, comment about Rudolf Hirsch, and he was required to write a diary because he he was arrested and then hanged at Nuremberg. Mm -hmm. And he wrote, and it's because of the, his diary that I think this story is there and that this film is made. Because in the diary, he is completely, in inverted commas, normal. He loves his family. He loves his children. He loves animals. He hates cruelty to animals. It is, in that respect a perfectly ordinary life that you can relate to. And then, as we see in the film, he gets on a horse and he rides into Auschwitz and we know what's going on there. So I think it's the... Yes, and the horse is a... It's huge, but... I, a strange detail. It's it's a... Um, it's very disconcerting, but it's a, I thought it was brilliant mm -hmm. precisely because he was so disconnected and cold about... His, I mean, he... on. The, when we see him in his house, it's an ordinary house with ordinary kids going, you know, losing things and, um, and playing and, and playing and going in the river and all that. And then, but it's because we know what he's doing when he goes to work, which makes the whole thing increasingly oppressive as we go through. Can I just ask you about the, um, I don't know, the storybook sequences or uh, the kind of the dream sequences? Yes, which in which you see a character sort of coming in and hiding food. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I just wonder, because people go, oh, what? I wonder what this is going to do. Now. Well, yeah, I mean, I those sequences are strange, but there's some, there is something, there's something going on there about a kind. It's, a, it, is it a glimmer of, is it a glimmer of hope? Is it, a, is it a, is it a sort of fairy tale? I mean, I thought it was that you know, at the, at the, at, during the night time that the, the food was being was being plucked. Well, that is what's what's happening. But you see it in almost like a kind of like a sort of mm. sort of semi fairy tale environment. I mean, I to be honest with you, I didn't question it. I thought it was I, I thought it was just some kind of glimmer of something because it's so oppressive. It's so oppressive being in that house with this. And as I said, I think the soundscape is the thing that... No, it absolutely is. You have to listen to what's going on. Yeah. Did you have a problem with those with those sort of storybook sequences? No, I thought it was slightly out of... Uh, precisely because it had felt very documentary, as you yes. mentioned. That suddenly it was doing something else, which it's quite entitled yeah. to do. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't... I, I don't. I mean, it, they, it didn't take me out of the story. I don't think I was entirely sure exactly stylistically what was happening, but I thought that it was... It didn't. It didn't diffuse the spell of the film for yeah. me, which is you know, which is oppressive. And and I, I think Sandra Huller is brilliant. I think she's absolutely brilliant in it. And I you know I th thought her performance was utterly believable, and and you know quietly chilling. It also taps into the conversation which we've had a number of times um, about other similar movies about monsters and how you know if you're portrayed as a monster on television or uh, in a movie, it sort of isn't good enough mm. because. Rudolf Hurst is not 
he does monstrous things, but he's not a monster because we see him at home being normal. It, yeah. needs a, it needs a deeper explanation, which you are forced to come out and try and come to terms with. Also, I think we should say, because <clears throat> next week, Steve McQueen is, uh, I think he's coming on the programme, yes. is that right? And uh, he's coming on to talk about uh, his new film, Occupied City, which again is about the Holocaust. And I do, I do think it's really important that these stories continue to be told and it continues to be brought back into your immediate consciousness. Um, you know, it's, Zone of Interest is not an easy watch, nor, nor should it be. But it, I think it is, it is right and good that this story is being constantly retold. So the movie is Zone of Interest. Do you think it's the kind of movie that will win awards or is it just the kind of movie that is nominated for it? my suspect well i think it a best sound i think it does have a yeah. have a shot at because the soundscape is really brilliantly designed then again i remember interviewing walter murch who had done the conversation and i and which was oscar nominated and the conversation's got the most unbelievable soundscape and they lost to earthquake oh, okay. so you know <laughs> bear in mind awards not always the the smartest decisions. You surprised me. Um, still to come, later on in this here take. Oh, we're going to be reviewing uh, Argyle, which yes. is a new film by Matthew Vaughan, and American Fiction. A and you'll be hearing from, uh, from its star. Uh, we'll be back uh, in just a moment. Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So, the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed Indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. That's indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. Mark, I was re-watching The Wolf of Wall Street just the other day. Really? And I thought to myself, yes, wouldn't it be good to make all that money without doing, you know, all that bad stuff? It certainly would, Simon, without the bad stuff. Yes. Well, Mark, after the film finished, I hopped onto the internet, as you do, and I found this site called Shopify. Have you heard of Shopify? I think I might have done, but tell me. Well, Shopify is the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, or grow your own business. Yes, I have heard of Shopify. It's the commerce platform revolutionising millions of businesses worldwide. That's right. Whether you're selling Danish pastries or cherry wine, Lovely. Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can successfully grow your business. Full of the industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without learning new skills in design or coding. And what's lovely about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify will be there to empower you with the confidence and control to take your business to the next level. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash 
Kermode. Hello? Not mayo. All lowercase. Go to shopify.co.uk slash Kermode. Take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.co.uk slash Kermode. Something wrong here. Without mayo. Okay, so uh, box office top 10 in just a moment. Uh, first of all, Ken Robertson Chain, secondary school music teacher from East Kilbride. Um, first time emergency mailer, short term listener here, currently emailing from my stationary parked car with a sleeping toddler. Just wanted to write in. Uh, she starts off by saying, Dear Boring Man 1 and Boring Man 2. That's us, by the way. I want to say a big thank you for the dual role you're playing in the life of our little family. For a long time, your witterings have been the accompaniment to my cooking, uh, commute, running, and general pottering about. But since the arrival of our little boy, you have taken on a new role. He's been a terrible sleeper. And as I know many parents do, we have been known to give in and utilize a car nap for everyone's sanity. During said car naps, I've put on, I've always put on the podcast as the free time I once had to listen has diminished and I like to keep up to date with all the films that need to be added to the growing list of films we haven't managed to watch over the last two years. Um, <laughs> However, recently we've started to employ the podcast as a signal to an overtired, refusing-to-sleep toddler that it really is time to nap. <laughs> as such, we have been known to say, the boring men are on, it's sleepy time. So we're like the Teletubbies, basically. And lo and behold, before we know, he's out. So I just want to say a huge thank you for your wittering, for wittering our little sleep thief to, to sleep and keeping us entertained whilst he does. Oh, and apologies for referring to you as the boring men, but in comparison to the stick song from Hey Dougie that's played on repeat in the car, if you know, you know, it's quite a contrast. So there you go. We could, we could have a whole new uh, business in sleep apps. Yes. We could just talk boringly and your children would just go... <laughs> I think we do that quite effectively yeah, exactly. anyway. Uh, Ken, thank you very much, Steve, for getting uh, in touch. I also like the fact that it was referred to as the stationary parked car, as opposed to what? The moving parked car? Well, it's just <laughs> underlining, I think, <laughs> no, I and emphasising the legality of the... There is a story, isn't there, that there was a, there's a family who fell asleep at the traffic lights. It, yes, that's it's a, friend of, uh, a friend of mine. A family with, with, with new kids, completely exhausted. Uh, they've been to the shops, get in the car pull up at a red light and everyone falls asleep. falls asleep. And the first thing they know is they're being honked <laughs> by behind. I guess you can be you can be stationary but not parked. You can be in a traffic jam. But you or can't be lights. parked but not stationary. No, that's true. Okay. Anyway, box office top 10 at 35, Jack Daw. I quite enjoyed it. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's that movie but with, with added motocross and it's very stylishly done and the sequence at the beginning in the canoe really gave me the chills. At 27, Samsara. Which is a film which has a moment in the middle of it, 15 minutes in which you are invited to close your eyes and experience the film with your... You, honestly, although you're not saying anything, mm -hmm. the way in which you're not saying anything is speaking volumes. Thanks. It's a festival. Festival favourite, and I enjoyed it. Festival favourite is good. Number 11 is Baghead. Mm, nothing like as scary as a horror film. Not scary and a horror film, so a disappointment. Aidan says, I'm writing to inform you that last night in Gloucester, I had the most terrifying experience in a cinema watching Baghead. Really? Never before have I feared for the life of another person as they were being choked by an unknown force. 
I'm not talking about the film. I'm talking about the woman in the audience who suddenly started walking down the steps, choking on something. Fortunately, there was a gentleman nearby who performed the Heimlich manoeuvre on her and she was saved. It would be difficult for any horror film to live up to the fear of someone's actual life being in danger, but Baghead was particularly not up to the task, (laughs) despite its one jump scare. Still, it was better than Night Swim. I still haven't seen Night Swim. Um, I don't think you're going to be tempted to either. I'm not going Um, to. Number 10 is The Beekeeper. He's... uh, He's keeping bees. He's going to kill someone with a chair. The staith. I enjoyed it. Uh, number nine is One Life. Again, I will draw attention to the fact that we've had mails from people saying at the end of the film, everyone sat in silence, which I think is the strongest review of that movie. Yeah, I think, and we've got more on that later. Okay, fine. Uh, right, The Colour Purple is at number eight. So Alan, this, this, uh, is the, this is the film of the musical of The of the Colour Purple, not, not, the re, not a re-release yes. of the Stigma film. Yeah. Alan Potter says, I watched... Spielberg's Colour Purple for a project about a year ago and while I thought it was very well made and well acted I too thought the heavier moments were not given enough weight in the film Uh, I come out of this new musical with pretty much the same feelings I know musicals can deal with serious subjects starving orphans in workhouses leading to lives of crime gang-related murders on the streets of New York but incest, rape, teenage pregnancies, arranged marriages, domestic abuse, psychological trauma, and family... At this point in this email, I'm thinking of uh, the email that we just had trying to get the toddler to sleep. But anyway, I apologise. Family abandonment are not the sort of things I find myself tapping my toes and clicking my fingers to. It was quite telling, I thought, that the filmmakers seemed to agree with me. They didn't really have any songs in those moments and tried to keep it light instead. I like this slightly less than the 1985 version... And the seriousness of the subject just works better for me as a straight ju- as a straight drama. Yes, I mean, I think it is, as I said when I was reviewing it, it is just unusual for this story to be told as a musical. That said, the stage musical was a big success. This obviously hasn't set the box office on fire. Um, going in at number eight, I, I think I'd expected it to do better than that because I think, you know, it, it, it's well played and it's well designed and the music is well done, but there is no getting beyond the fact that it is a strange thing to do for a musical. And certainly, if anyone was worried about the Spielberg film taking the harsh edges off the drama, then this does so and then yeah. some. And it's number 20 in America, so... Okay. Uh, seven uh, is Fighter. Okay, so Fighter hasn't been uh, press-screened. It is an Indian-Hindi-language uh, action film. If anybody has seen it, send us a review. The Holdovers is at number six. I loved The Holdovers. I can't get over the fact that they didn't... I can't get over the fact that they held it over until January. Thank mm. you very much, here all week. I guarantee you this will become a Christmas staple in future years. And, but if you get a chance to see it in February, yeah. then do so. See it at any time of the year, you know. Poor Things is at number five. Well, I, you know, I'm just a huge fan. I, I love the score. Congratulations to Jerskin Fendrix for getting nominated for Best Original Score. I think uh, Emerson is fantastic. I think Yorgos Lanthimos's direction is everything you want from Yorgos Lanthimos. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, we've had we've had correspondence. Some people really take against it. Uh, some people have really, really embraced it. I'm on the really, really embraced it side. Number four is Anyone But You. Which I still haven't seen, but I need to because it's Will Glark. Uh, number three here, number three in the States is Wonka. Still, still in there in its, its eighth week. Yeah. Uh, number two here is uh, All of Us Strangers. How great to see All of Us Strangers going in at number two because it's... 
absolutely wonderful, moving, just heartbreaking. I had um I had a conversation with my therapist just yesterday about the use of always on my mind, which is not something that I expected to come up in a therapy session. So email from Cara Adams from Little Old Newlyn in Cornwall. <laughs> Little Old uh, Newlyn, Grand Newlyn. No, I'm just saying that's what Cara is okay, saying. Okay, fine. Hello. Hello, you wonderful humans. I'd only just started listening back in November with Saltburn being my first episode. Wow. Bad, I know, but uh, I adore, admire and aspire to be Emerald Fennell. <laughs> you are now my oracles. This film was a true testimony to love, family and trauma. I am in awe of Andrew Haig and the entire cast. Knowing the film was adapted from a Japanese ghost story, I was unsure on how this was going to be shown on screen. Some ghost stories are a bit laborious and tiresome, but Andrew has done it perfectly. Breathtaking, beautiful, True, touching, heartwarming, heart-wrenching, funny, sad, happy, adoring. I felt it all. It was a true journey. I was a wreck when the power of love bled through the speakers and just couldn't move for a solid 10 minutes after the screen went blank, which is why I commented on yes. our other correspondence about uh, one films life. where you just want to sit there. I had to just sit and process everything I just witnessed. With January already producing some incredible films, Poor Things, Holdovers, Priscilla, One Life, it was... Stiff competition, but Andrew Haig and cast have knocked it out the park. Thank you, Cara. Rachel in Edinburgh. I saw all of us strangers on Friday night and did something I've never done before, immediately booked another ticket for Saturday night. This is cinema at its best. It's a film about what we are and what we can be and what we can't, about our limitations and needs and fundamental completely human inability to deal with the weight of loss. It's about so much, but it's about grief and family and love and memory and arrested development and probably a hundred more things. I felt ripped in half by the end in a good way. I'm not quite... Which is... Yeah, uh, no, I, I know it is. Yeah. Okay. I've heard Andrew Scott say you'll probably get something more from the film if you're gay. And while I think so much here is profoundly universal, it's the specificity to the queer experience that makes the film remarkable for me. The unbearable weight of saying the unsaid, both from him and from his parents, is unique in this scenario. Something every LGBT person will know, but the core of it is an experience omnipresent for humanity. Uh, thank you. Wow. Rachel. It, um, it, it does remind me that when you did that interview with Andrew Haig, which you can listen to on last week's podcast, yeah. he said, because you told him a story about you having a dream about your dad. Yeah. And he said, so many people have done that, have come up to me and said, the film spoke to me about that particular thing. And it, it is fascinating that a Japanese ghost story that has been previously adapted for the cinema as a Japanese film called Discarnates, which if anyone is interested, do check it out. It's a very different telling of the story. But the universe, the universality of it is that anyone can experience those feelings, and I think the, the Andrew Haig's film really has tapped into a universal nerve. Yeah, um, yeah, and and uh, our correspondent is right. January has been this is Cara from Newlyn. January's been pretty good. Like yes, that. I mean, technically, it's because we're we're in awards corridor. Yes. So, you know, they... they is that what of, it is? It's called the awards corridor. Yeah, it is, yeah. So it's, it, it is something that happens and it's kind of... It's, it's at once great and also sometimes frustrating because it will sometimes mean that in any one week, you'll suddenly find two or three really fascinating uh, releases, whereas somewhere further down the calendar, you might get a week in which... You know, hey, yeah. be thankful for the beekeeper. If you're doing um, dry January, January does go on 
forever. Uh, and the reason is you're in awards corridor. And it's, right, a corridor yes, it's a long corridor. It goes on forever. Uh, number one is Mean Girls. <laughs> the interesting thing about Mean Girls is that when it, was, when it was originally made, they had planned it to only have a Paramount Plus release. And it ended up in cinemas because their test screenings had gone better than expected. And there it is, number one in the box office. So, you know, what's that old phrase? In Hollywood, no one knows anything. It, and there's your proof. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment. And Jeffrey Wright's going to be our guest coming up. This episode is brought to you by the good folks at NordVPN. Mark, would you say that AI has been one of the hot topics of the last 12 months or I so? I would indeed yes. say that, Simon. We've had uh, writers and actors striking over the potential misuses of AI. We've had many films exploring the topic, including uh, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, and The Creator, among others. We have, and although technological advancements bring with them exciting things, they also open the door to cybercrime. Yes, and with all these technological improvements, cybercrime will become more accessible to the average criminal and will become more frequent. And I've said it once, and I'll say it again, this is why NordVPN is so important. With one click on the NordVPN app, you are protected, meaning that you don't have to be tech-savvy. Their threat protection feature shields your devices from viruses, malicious malware, and phishing sites. Also, one NordVPN account can be used on up to six devices. Plus, you can get access to streaming services in other regions, all for the price of a cup of coffee per month. To get the best available discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com take. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. And you'll help support our podcast. The link is in the podcast episode description box. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover, such as... Well, such as High and Low, John Galliano, which is the thought-provoking new documentary from Oscar winner Kevin MacDonald, charting the rise and fall of the fashion designer John Galliano. It's, uh, it traces Galliano's working and private life through the decades, candidly investigating his struggles with addiction and the industry pressure he faced along the way. It features conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, Anna Wintour, and many, many more. And it is showing in UK cinemas from March the 8th. Or you could explore the Women's Cinematographers Film Group, streaming on movie in the UK from March the 8th. As women have found more equal footing in the film industries, directors, producers, and screenwriters, cinematography remains a stubborn final frontier. Around International Women's Day, Mubi is spotlighting the artistic and technical work of women working behind the camera, including... Including films such as Annette from 2021, Benedetta from the same year, and more recently, Passages, all streaming in the UK from March the 8th. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash Kermit and Mayo. That's mubi.com slash Kermit and Mayo for a whole month of great cinema for free. Now, our first guest today, because we're going to have two guests, because Killian Murphy's on the way, um, is an Emmy, Tony, and Golden Globe Award-winning actor. He's just added an Oscar nomination to his list of accolades uh, with the film American Fiction. Uh, he's, of course, Jeffrey Wright, and you'll hear from him after this clip from the movie. Wait a minute. Why, why are these books here? I'm not sure... I would imagine that this author, Ellison, is black. That's me, Ellison. Yeah. He is me, and he and I are black. Oh, bingo. No, no bingo, Ned. These books have nothing to do with African-American studies. They're just literature. The, the blackest thing about this one is the ink. 
I don't decide what sections the books go in, and no one here does. That's how chain stores work. Right. And you don't make the rules. Hmm. I'm just gonna put them back after you leave. Don't you dare, Ned. Do not you dare. That is a clip from American Fiction. I'm delighted to say we've been joined by its star, Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey, hello, good afternoon. How are you, sir? I'm well, I'm well. Thanks for having me, Simon. And uh, congratulations on the uh, the Oscar nomination for Best Actor. Five nominations for this picture. Uh, there must be a spring in your step every morning. <laughs> sure. <laughs> no, it's, it's very good. It's, it's, it's better than the alternative, uh, not to be appreciated, uh, certainly. And it's really gratifying that, you know, our peers have seen our film and uh, think that uh, we, we've done some pretty good work. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. See, I want to, I want to uh, compliment you and your movie without sounding like I'm one of the tone-deaf people in your film. <laughs> well, uh, have at it. <laughs> okay, so I really enjoyed your film and I thought you were terrific. Oh, thank you. <laughs> They're the, word, they're the words that I've come up with. Uh, introduce us to Monk, introduce us to... Thel so Thelonious Ellison uh, is his name. Monk is what he's referred to uh, as throughout the picture. Introduce us to him uh, and uh, tell us as much as you can about him. Well, uh, he's a writer, uh, also a professor of English at a university in California. He's his own man. He writes from uh, a perspective that is is his own. He... He wants to be creatively and intellectually free, but the things that he writes about aren't necessarily the things that audiences want to read. So he's uh, he writes things that are maybe a bit esoteric or, as is shown in the film, maybe not considered to be things that he should be writing about, things that yeah. are not quite black enough. So out of frustration, he decides to write a novel that... Uh, is for the masses, an urban novel that uh, he, he thinks will, will show up the hypocrisy of the publishing world, and so he does. And uh, under an assumed name, the name of Stagar Lee, uh, which is a reference to this uh, pimp caricature of the 19th century in America, yeah. and lo and behold, this, uh, this, this novel becomes the best-selling of his career and blows up. And uh, he's off on this kind of crazy adventure in which that character that he created, uh, kind of like Frankenstein, turns around to consume him uh, in a way. Meanwhile, his family is falling apart, uh, crisis after crisis, his mother is ailing, and he's asked to be the adult inside the room of his house and be caretaker to his mother and help kind of salvage the family. And so there are any number of pressures working on him and he's at the middle trying to make his way through it all. And at the same time, uh, you know, the film has quite a bit of laughs as he as he does. Oh yeah, that and that's certainly true. So there, so there is social commentary in satire, which I want to come back to, but it's that family life from reading other interviews that you've done, Jeffrey, that you seem to be really particularly proud of as a, a, as a story that we don't see. And certainly it's not the way the movie's been advertised, actually, I don't think. But So it's kind of like two, two stories or a, a fully enriched character that we're watching here. Yes, well, the thrust of the story is his journey as a writer and the escapades that he finds himself inside as a result of, you know, making this choice to lead this dual life. 
And that thrust leads us to a far less absurd aspect of the film, to the more human side of the film, which is found within the portrait of this family, which is a family like any family, a bit messy, a bit loving, functional and dysfunctional, but together in spite of itself. And it's that family, I think, that provides in some ways an answer to the misperception of who this man is. Really, he's just a man who's dealing with the things that every other uh, person in a situation such as his would be responding. He's leading this ordinary human life um, that's complex, that for me, as an actor, I'd not been asked to play before. I'd never had an opportunity before to be a part of such a wonderfully interesting and beautiful, at the end of the day, at least to my eyes, family. It's something that we rarely see. And so what the film is trying to do is argue that there, there's a broader humanity in the representation of characters such as myself, of black life, uh, not only in film or in the publishing world, but generally in terms of the misperceptions, very often preconceptions of who we are. And it's shown, again, as a foil to the absurdity, almost tragic absurdity of the satirical side of the film through uh, the portrait of, uh, of the Ellisons. You said it's the most personal film that you've ever made, and I think you've hinted at the reason why there, just talking about the, the overlap of this family uh, into the way everyone is going to relate to this film. But could you explain just a bit more about what you meant about why this was such a personal film for you? Well, my character finds himself at that point in his life where the youthful delusions that suggest that life gets easier as you get older are completely done away with. I found myself at that point when this script arrived uh, to me. My mom had passed away a little over a year prior. I had the great good fortune of being raised by my mother and her eldest sister, who's now 94 years old. Uh, and she came to live with me and my kids in New York. Uh, the pandemic set in. As all of us, you know, experienced, there were enormous pressures by that, but also as well by the passing of my mom and the void that she left, and now the responsibility to be caretaker to, um, you know, my my aunt, whom I love dearly. It was just a lot of of uh, pressures uh, all of a sudden uh, being exerted, and so I understood the ways in which that asks sacrifices of a person. And so I, 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 had, I felt a kinship with the challenges, uh, with this character and the you know, relative to the challenges that he faced. And I also understood the pressures from the other side of the film, if you will, the, the, the misperceptions, the, the, the preconceptions, the attempts to limit his creative freedom. I don't complain. Uh, I think I've done pretty well in kind of circumnavigating those in my career. Uh, you know, I've, I've done work that I love, uh, proud of, but I, but I understand the nature and the sources of those pressures. So 
Um, yeah, there was a lot that I felt in alignment with. But what's wonderful about the film, again, going back to the family side, yes, there's a universality to that, but also there's a universality to this idea of being misperceived. I think all of us in our own ways at times have not felt seen for our authentic selves. That doesn't simply relate to being a black man in America. That relates to being a human uh, in any uh, space at times. And so again, there's a universality to that uh, side of the film and, and audience members who I've spoken with have responded to that even if they uh, don't happen to be black and male, as I am. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a scene um, which, as far as the, the, the publishing side of the story, seemed to be at the heart of, of the movie. And, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you, um, you are sitting at a table with another writer, played by uh, Issa Rae, and... Uh, she's reading a book and you're eating a very noisy salad, yeah. um, which is the noisiest salad ever in a movie, I think. Um, and you're, you say to her, are you not fed up with black people being shown in books in poverty and rapping and being murdered by the police? We're more than this. And you basically say she's, she's writing black trauma porn. And she says, you've got an issue with white people. Something like that anyway. But it, it's a fantastic scene. Is that the heart of, of, of the publishing side of the story? I think that is the thesis argument of the film. And we were building up from the first day of, of filming to that scene. We, I, we understood Cord Jefferson and I, who adapted this, uh, this screenplay from a book by Percival Everett called Erasure. Uh, we, we were really building up to that scene because there is um, a kind of clarifying moment that happens within the scene. And it's not as expected in that my character, Monk, is challenged. His perspective is challenged by, uh, by Issa Rae's character, Centara Golden, um, whom he wants to dismiss, but I think learns that she may be just as smart and as savvy as he is. And he's also not the most reliable narrator necessarily. One of the things that we wanted to insist upon was that our film not be a kind of classist take on issues of representation. We didn't want to be dismissive. We didn't want to be exclusive. We're, we're just suggesting that the, the range can be broadened. But in that moment, it's not clear who is, whose argument is actually the more truthful or the more accurate. But rather, it seems that the thesis lies somewhere on the table in between them in some type of synthesis of their two perspectives. Again, we're not trying to answer all the questions in this film. That was never the intent. The, the, the idea was to raise maybe more interesting questions around kind of thorny issues that, you know, center on race and representation and identity, uh, which is part of a conversation that's being had in many parts of, uh, of the world right now. It's, it's worth mentioning, you, you mentioned Cord Jefferson, who wrote and directed. It's his debut, I think, as, as a director. This is quite a calling card. Yes. Well, Cord uh, is a sharp guy, and it was clear from the script that he wrote that he's a wonderful communicator, wonderful writer. He's also a wonderful leader. Very few groups 
powers that be wanted to make our film. Orion Pictures was at the front of this um, and a group called MRC and T Street. They were the only groups in Hollywood who would touch our film. Loved the script, uh, loved, you know, me, they said, but yeah, don't love, uh, don't love it all enough to finance it. But Cord had the vision and the tenacity to get this film made. That speaks to the quality of his leadership. And so uh, when I met him, when I read his script, it was clear to me that he could do this, and so he did. Yeah, wonderful debut. Well, I wish you all the best for the uh, award season, Jeffrey. It's very nice to speak to you. My only disappointment is that uh, I read that despite coming from Washington, D.C., you're an Arsenal supporter, whereas clearly Tottenham Hotspur was the correct choice for you to make when you were in London. But anyway, I'll forgive you for that. Ah, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's rough. Yeah, but unfortunately, I'm going to miss the match on, uh, on Sunday because I'll be otherwise at a fete, you know, uh, with the film. Can't win them all, but Jeffrey Wright, a pleasure to speak to you and uh, and all the best for the Oscars. Thank you so much. Thank for you. Yeah. To us today. Hope we win Sunday. I hope you don't actually. <laughs> hey, there you go. <laughs> Jeffrey Wright talking uh, about his new movie, American Fiction, uh, which I, I I enjoyed it uh, enormously. Anyway, yes. and it's easy to see. It's a very it's a very likable film. I wanted more of the publishers because there's some truths being spoken uh, there. Well, look, let's just begin this by saying, if you're listening to the podcast, which you are doing, oh, yeah, yeah, we should say this. Yes. So you've just heard an interview with Jeffrey Wright, which went really well. It was funny. It was witty. What's your some... favorite bit? I really enjoyed the thing when you asked him about uh, his favorite potted plant. Yes. And um, and he gave you such an interesting answer that they had to cut it out. We have taken, we've had, yes, Let's unfortunately, just, just, just for time reasons. Yes, yeah. because it's normally what happens is all the interviews are done before the program is recorded. For this particular uh, program, it's probably awards congestion. It's the awards corridor. The corridor is very congested. And, yeah, it is. We're getting towards the end of the corridor, which means that the, the chat, which you've just heard, Mark has not heard. Because it hasn't happened yet. Because it hasn't and happened. And also, yet. you haven't heard it either. Because I haven't done it yet. Neither of us have heard it yet. In fact, so, it might not even exist. <clears> this is like a Christopher Nolan movie, isn't it? It's like, right. it's like Tenet. So, you know, you've just heard the interview that we haven't done, that I haven't heard, that Simon Yesterday hasn't Yesterday is folding into tomorrow. All these things. So, so now a breath. Tell us about the film, Mark. And, I, and if I'm repeating anything that he said, I'm sorry, yes. but I'm at least repeating it in advance. So... This is an adaptation of a 2001 novel, Erasure, by Percival Everett. It's The film is written and directed by Cord Jefferson in their directorial debut. Got five nominations at the Oscars. Again, you may have covered this. Best Picture, Best Actor for Jeffrey Wright, <clears throat> Supporting Actor for Sterling K. Brown, Adapted Screenplay, and Best Score for Laura Cartman, who, disappointingly, is the only female composer uh, nominated. Once again, I'm sorry to bang on about this, but they really do need to sort out that section because there have been so many fantastic scores by women this year. It, it, it is, it's almost like they say, yeah, well, we, 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 we nominated a woman once and we let somebody win once, so now can we move on? So Wright is Monk, Thelonious Monk Ellison, who is a black professor in LA who is also an author. His books are respected, but they get very little success. And as you heard from the clip at the beginning of the interview, which I did hear the clip yes. and the, the interview. Very funny clip. They're all put over in that section. Why? Well, because I imagine that this author is black. This author is black. This author is me, as he says. And then he goes to move his books because he says they're nothing to do with that particular, just because that's who I am. I've moved my books. Have you? Yes. <laughs> I've done the thing about taking my book off a bookshelf when it's sideways and putting it front-facing, of course. Put it on the, the bestseller table. Exactly. Um, 
So his books are respected with little success. He then sees this uh, up-and-coming, you know, Johnny-come-lately author, Centaur Golden, played by Issa Rae, being celebrated for a book called Wees Lives in the Ghetto, which is, we hear a, a reading from it, which just sounds like it's absolutely full of stereotypes, which is exactly what he thinks. He says, "What? what is that? It's just reproducing stereotypes. It's ridiculous. And in response to that ridiculousness, he ghostwrites a book called My Pathology, which then... Did to With an F instead of pathology, the, yes. yeah, pathology. Not just me mispronouncing, letting you know how it's spelled. And uh, it has all those sort of same stereotypes. It's promptly picked up by the publishers who are excited by this. They think, oh, this is an exciting proposition. It's going to be anonymous. So he creates um, he creates an author who becomes a former convict, Stag R. Lee. Get it? Yes, yes. At this at this point, you're thinking springtime for Hitler. <laughs> Precisely yeah. so. And th- then what follows is a very smart satire with some terrific performances, lovely effective score, incidentally, and a very nice line in dramatizing the writing process. You, as somebody who is a writer, can tell me whether or not you actually do envisage characters sort of playing out in front of you. But it's very hard to do anything about writing, isn't it? Yeah, it was. I thought it, I thought they did that fantastically. Yeah. Well. So all that stuff is good, and uh, Wright and Sterling K. Brown spot on. I like the way that it takes pot shots at the at, at sort of, you know, stereotypes. It also kind of wrong foots your expectations to some extent. And there are, if you've ever had any contact with the publishing world, um, which I obviously understand is a fairly small niche thing, but if you have, I do think the stuff about editors and publishers and media influencers and all that kind of stuff, even though it's, you know, it's, it's exaggerated satire, there is more than a kernel of truth in it, isn't there? Yes, Yes, I think so. And and as you heard in the interview, although you didn't hear, Haven't yet. I spent most of my time <laughs> talking about wanting that. to say very nice things about the movie, but not wanting to sound like some of the terrible, obsequious, ghastly white people in this film. Yes, and in fact, I, I believe that will publishing. that will have been in one of your opening questions, won't it? Because yes. you, you told me to, that no, to definitely me last night, which was actually last night. That did happen when I was having a cup of tea at your house. I do have reservations, and here are my reservations. I think all that stuff about the publishing, about, you know, that book being a success, or I'm going to write this book, I'm going to create this character, it's going to become a huge success. I think all that's good. I am far less interested when the film decides to broaden that palette and to become a more expansive and slightly... A tender family drama. There's a romance. There's the relationship with his mother. There's all this sibling stuff going in. And now, look, the fact that the film has got a Best Picture nomination means that for some people, that broadening worked. Because generally, to get a Best Picture nomination, you know, you have to please, a, you know, a, a wide audience. So it's almost like, okay, we broadened it out. We got a Best Picture nomination. So Kermod, you can shut up because we it's done what we what we thought it was going to do. The problem with for me is that I think that all that stuff takes the edge off the stuff that I like. So the stuff about the publishing, the stuff, the the, the satirical stuff is good, but it loses its bite. And it actually, if anything, even becomes a little bit trite when it gets into the other areas of just being a more kind of broadly humanist, observational comedy. And I think what happened with me was I went in with very high expectations because I know a couple of people had seen it, really, really liked it, and I liked the score very much because I've been playing that on Scala. 
And I thought it started really well. And I thought the cast were great. I thought all that stuff would go. And then I think it loses its way. And it's it's kind of ironic that it that in a story about how in order to in order to become a success you have to sell out. It's not that this sells out, but I think it sells itself short by sort of moving off into these other areas. Which, as I say, hands up. The film's got a Best Picture nomination. Yeah. It's clearly working for some people. Well, but it, worked for me, for, well, it worked for me. And I think one of the reasons is he, he's such a buttoned-down character Yes, um, that it, it explains a little bit about his family, but it also, crucially, gives you a reason why financially he needs to make this compromise. Yes, I, but I think that, that that is a plot point rather than a... Is there no point of view that thinks that the film would have been improved by being more about the publishing and less about the family? No, no well, no, no, fair no, no, not necessarily. I mean, if it had been all about the publishing, I might have thought I'd like to know. I, I don't know. I just think he's such an intriguing character. Well, I think I'm, he's. I think he's great, and I think the performance, incidentally, is terrific. And when we did the, I did the thing for the Observer a few weeks ago about you know who should be nominated. Yes, absolutely. Jeffrey Wright and Sterling K. Brown absolutely should both be nominated because they what they do is terrific. It's it's more to do with I think a it's a format of the film that the film to me felt like it started really sharp and then became slightly fuzzy. Okay. Very good. Well, fortunately I couldn't put that point to Jeffrey because we've already done the interview. <laughs> done the interview. <laughs> um but I thought it was rocking. Anyway, um so um, it's a it's a don't get me wrong, it's a really good film, you know, and and there's so much to enjoy, not least the performances. Ads in a minute, um but first Mark, let's step uh, with Gay Abandon into our laughter lift. Oh dear. We're not going to be in for very long, so you Okay, fine. fine, great. We've only gone up a few floors. That's right. Hey Mark, um, hello son. How do you think the unthinkable? I don't know. With an iceberg. Oh. See? Good. Hey, Mark, how do you get four elephants in a Fiat 500? Oh, well, that's the same. You put two in the front, two in the back. How do you know when there are eight elephants in an Italian church? There are two Fiat 500s parked outside. Anyway, we're going to be back ah, after this. Ah. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. I told you it was brief, just half a floor. Were you t- were you short of time, Simon Paul? Unless you're a Vanguardista, in which case we have just one question. What weighs the same as an apricot? Hey, it's Ben Bailey-Smith here, Substitute Taker, and this episode is brought to you by Better Help. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. If I had an extra hour slotted into my day, I'd actually get through a question, schmestions. You know, it's I can never quite fit the extra shows in. We all live busy lives these days and everything seems to move at 100 miles an hour. So how do we know what to make room for? Like, how do we know what's really important when our lives are happening so quickly? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. And if you know what matters to you, you can do more of it. And isn't that why we're really here? So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. And it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash kermode. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash kermode. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. 
I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. So what weighs the same as an apricot? Another apricot. The answer is the entire internet. What? That's the weight of all the electrons in the electricity required to make the internet work. What? Assuming 75 to 100 million servers supporting the internet and not including the home PCs running it. But the whole of the internet weighs an apricot. Sorry, do electrons have weight? Yes, but the actual information in it weighs less than a speck of dust. This goes back to my favourite question. <laughs> and, and the use of it is even less. Uh, when I did a feature uh, back on the uh, on the dark side, which was called Homework Sucks, there was a question which was... Homework sucks! Da, 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 Does da. my brand new phone weigh less than um, my, my phone when I've put my entire record collection into it? And the oh, answer right. is, yes, it is lighter when you buy it, and it is heavier when you put your entire record collection in there, but by such an imperceptible amount, you can't weigh it. It all goes down to E equals MC squared, which will explain everything. It's and it brings it back to Oppenheimer. Exactly. Nicely done. Anyway, so there you go. Have we done Killian yet? Uh, we're about to do Killian Murphy, oh, right. which is okay, a very, fine. very exciting This thing. is a really time-shifted program. That's right. How do you think the Killian Murphy interview is going to go? I think it's going to go really well. Do you think he's going to remember having interviewed us before? Because I think he is. Let's hear that in just a moment after this very promo-heavy piece from Oppenheimer. What's the nature of the device they detonated? Data indicates it may have been a plutonium implosion device. Like the one you built at Los Alamos. Secret laboratory. In the middle of nowhere. Keep everyone there until it's done. Why? If we don't let scientists bring their families, we'll never get the best. Build them a town. Why would I leave my family? I told you, you can bring your family. I'm not a soldier, Abby. A soldier? He's a general. I've got all the soldier I need. What can I tell them? As much as you like, until you feel my boot on your balls. You know isotopes, and you know explosives. But you can't tell us what you're doing. If you're ready to go, Killian, we're ready to go at this end. Let's do it. Okay. I know how much you love these interviews. So that's, uh, <laughs> I, I, I like talking to you guys. Do you remember the last time you gave me the Spanish Inquisition? Uh, I do. I, yeah, I do <laughs> because we were trying to find out whether you were in... The next Batman. The next Batman. And you said... I can't say anything. I can't say anything. And Simon said, are you in the Batman? You said, I can't say anything. I can't say anything. And he asked you a third time and you said, look, I've signed a piece of paper. And he went, <laughs> which means you're in it. Oh, yeah. did I? <laughs> you wow, did. what a pro. It was genius, yes. <laughs> it was honestly, it was it was like Frost Nixon all over again. <laughs> so does it, um, does, it, does it feel strange to be still talking about Oppenheimer? I mean, I know we're in award season and everything. And this is the way it, it works. But is it odd to still be promoting it after this time no there's a lot to talk about in that movie so um yes. i don't don't mind that and it's lovely that people are talking about it in such flattering terms and it's really nice being because you know we were on strike for so long mm -hmm. it's nice to be able to go out and talk about it freely now particularly after it connected so in such a huge way with audiences in a far greater way than any of us had anticipated so no it's it's really nice because the strike actually began on the red carpet premiere of Oppenheimer at Leicester Square because the cast were there up until five o'clock and then the strike began and that was the beginning of it. Everybody had to leave after that. That's right, yeah. We walked off. Yeah. 
Okay, so we're now so okay, so now you're liberated. We can talk about it. Was there any stage in in the filming process where you get a kind of a suspicion? I mean, obviously it's a Chris Nolan film, so it's going to be great, and the cast is extraordinary, and the story is amazing. Do you get any sense of how great it's going to be at any stage? Oh gosh, n- n- no. I think that would be the kiss of death if you ever had <laughs> thoughts like that making a film. I know from having worked with Chris for twenty years now and being fortunate to work closely with him that he's a very very special filmmaker um but this was very unique project for him uh, and you know we knew it was a tough subject matter and it was it was an awful lot of story to wrangle into a three-hour movie and it was a huge undertaking kind of herculean really in terms of the actual production and trying to shoot it in 57 days um and the size of the cast and the sort of themes that we were uh, addressing. So I knew it was a huge, huge challenge for, 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 for all of us. But no one ever anticipated this, you know, that it would connect the way. I mean, on paper, you know, a three-hour R-rated movie about a physicist doesn't have blockbuster <laughs> written all over it. Um, but somehow it, 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 it proved that formula wrong. And Although you, 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 were, you, you have said that it was one of the best screenplays you have ever read so clearly when sure. it when you when you got the pages you knew it was special at that point oh yeah i mean i i really i really really did but i i felt that way about a lot of chris's scripts you know i remember feeling that way about inception like it, that it was so so unique and unlike anything i'd read but this was sort of a next level for him i guess like i said in terms of what he was the story he was he was trying to tell but also the this how how laser like it was, you know, in 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 the way he wrote it. Also, I'd never written read a script written in the first person. That was my first experience of reading that. So it's very unique, you know. As for so for example, let's say I walked into the room and I spot straws. You know, so I'd never experienced that. So I knew that it would be this subjective piece of storytelling, and I knew that <clears throat> that put an awful lot of responsibility on my shoulders, which was wonderfully terrifying or terrifyingly wonderful. <laughs> that sense of the weight being on your shoulders, actually, I mean, more accurately on your face, because one of the things that Nolan does is uses IMAX for facial close-ups, which is not what people traditionally think of IMAX as. I don't think I've ever seen an actor's face so explored like a landscape, yeah. as in Oppenheimer. What was it like the first time you saw that <clears throat> on the big screen? Because it's the biggest and the most intimate you will ever see an actor's face. Chris and his DP, Hoyt van Hoytman, who are, you know, close close collaborators as well, um, they, they made a decision to use the IMAX for those intimate scenes, for those close-up scenes. Chris has always believed that you can use large format cameras like that, you know, but mm-hmm. this, they were, t- again, pushing it a bit further in this picture. I suppose for actors, you, again, you try not to think about the format too much. I've worked with all size cameras, you know, little GoPros and huge IMAX cameras, and you begin to just adapt to it. The thing about the the IMAX is that it makes this terrific noise. It's like a, it's like an aggressive fridge, like <laughs> like like whirring and, and, and at you. So you have to kind of get over that. But I was I, I've been a bit of a veteran because he used that on several of the other movies, so I'm kind of used to that. And again. It's more about the presentation than it is in the shooting. Do you know what I mean? You don't think about it until you see it, really. I mean, in the back of your mind, you are thinking, if this is watched in an IMAX theater, 
it will be shown on an 80 foot screen. So I don't have to do too much. That is in the back of your head. Uh, but I always knew that this was going to be a very interior performance. We knew that from the beginning. It had to be a very quiet performance because that was the sort of world that we were in. And it, this was a deeply intellectual uh, genius of a man. So we were trying to show that those cogs turning, you know, that was really the ambition. Okay, maybe you're hinting at this then, Killian. Could I ask you about how you become Oppenheimer? Because if if I'm right, he was a very he was a frail man. He was a slight man. Can I ask you about the physicality of of becoming Oppenheimer? Yes, he was. He was very very slim, almost kind of emaciated all his life. Um, just kind of naturally like that. I mean, he didn't eat either, so that didn't help. I mean, he he existed on cigarettes and martinis and. Um, Occasionally, an olive, I suppose, here and there. But it was uh, that was the way he was. He was very frail physically, and but um, you know this this giant brain and this huge intellect. And many of his contemporaries and peers thought him the most brilliant of them all. Um, uh, so yeah, it was important to get that silhouette right at the beginning, and, and we did. I, I like it's just a case of conditioning. You know, you have to condition your body for different types of roles. I mean, for Peaky Blinders, I had to get a bit a bit beefy and a bit hench, you know, and for Oppenheimer, you have to kind of do the opposite. And it, it was important. That silhouette was quite iconic, you know, with the hat and those high-waisted pleated trousers and that that sort of tailoring. And then it also changes the way you walk, it changes the way you carry yourself, and it changes you in relation to other people. So that was important. That was one aspect of the prep, for sure. It, it occurred to me, actually, when I was thinking about coming in to do the interview, uh, Killian, that you've been in an awful lot of the... Of the uh, televisual and scenic output that I've enjoyed the most. So I thought Quiet Place was a work of genius. Quiet Place 2 was absolutely fantastic. Uh, Peaky Blinders was wonderful. And then Oppenheimer, so extraordinary. But um, the reason I just want to mention that is presumably your friendship with Emily Blunt was a, a big plus for Oppenheimer. And I think you've said, actually, you said to her a couple of times, I couldn't have done that scene if it wasn't with you. Yeah, no, you're dead right. Emily Blunt is one of my favorite people in the world and also one of my favorite actors in the world. Um, I don't think there's anything that Emily Blunt can't do as an actor. She's just, she's got the most astonishing range. And we've become fast friends after Quiet Place 2. Uh, and I think, you know, Chris's, Chris's idea to cast us as husband and wife was, uh, you know, not done casually, I, I think, because... I think when you when you have a history with someone, I think the capture the the camera reads that. I think it does transfer, and then and then also you get so you get that for free, but then you also get this level of trust. Um, so that scene you're mentioning, where we both had to kind of go to quite emotional places, yeah, you, you need to do that some, with some of her ability and 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 someone that you trust as much as I trust her. So yeah, I felt very lucky. Always feel very lucky sharing the screen with Emily. What do we see you in next, Killian? Um, I have a film called Small Things Like These, which is opening the Berlin Film Festival on the 15th of February. Mark is going to the Berlin I'm going to Film be Festival. Berlin. We can hang out, you know, like we do. <laughs> well, come, come to the opening night, Mark. See, that's a personal invitation. I, I literally, well. I just turn up, I go, no, Killian Murphy invited me. I just think, that'd yeah. be fine. See how that Thank goes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I'm very proud of it. So, um, so we're, we're excited to, sh to kind of premiere it there. All right. Killian, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Nice to talk, lads.
How fantastic to have Killian um, on the show. Was that Killian? I just listened to Jeffrey Wright. No, no, no. That was definitely, <laughs> definitely uh, Killian Murphy. Uh, because as we, he's we, great, it, isn't it he's was great. all so disrupted around the strike, and there was we were going to do like a Barbenheimer show. We were, yes. Um, but then the de- you know the dates didn't match up, so we didn't get our usual interview with Christopher Nolan. I was very you know uh, upset about that, just because he's such an extraordinary, such fascinating person to talk to. And now we get to talk to Killian. He just doesn't do. He, I mean, he doesn't like interviews. He doesn't do very many interviews. Doesn't need to. He absolutely doesn't need to. But when he does, he's absolutely fascinating. If you want to talk to him about his family or something, you are not going to get anywhere. No, but if you want to talk to him about his record collection... Yeah, record collection or what he does for a living, then you're going to be... But good for him. Why should anyone ask him any other stuff? And he and Oppenheimer are going to win the most of everything. BAFTAs, Oscars, Okay, think? Shall, right, shall we do predictions? Because everyone knows it's completely foolhardy to do this, but shall we do them? I think no. Killian Murphy is going to win Best Actor. I think Oppenheimer is going to win Best Film. I think Christopher Nolan is going to win Best Director. Cards on the table. Okay. You now need to go and put a, a spread bet on not doing that. It, an not accumulator. Doing it, not doing it. And then you, you'll be able to it. afford... Um, because having a house, having even house. having lost my faith, I'm still not betting. Anyway, uh, so thanks to Killian for coming on. Uh, we'll see how all the awards goes, but obviously it's awards, but we don't take them that seriously. No, apart but it, from when we do, apart from when we do, yeah. So, uh, what what is new and out there okay, and appealing? Ar- Argyle is the new film by Matthew Vaughan, who's producer turned director, who has both delighted and appalled me in the past. On the delighted side, I liked Stardust. I loved Kickass. On the appalled side. The stuff in Kingsman, oh, which dear. just, yes. you know, it did, it ended, it did the bum note in the first film, and then the second film just seemed to be, you thought that was bad? We can make it much we worse. We can make it even worse. Uh, we also have uh, uh, Matthew Vaughan to thank for inventing Guy Ritchie, because he produced uh, Lockstock. So, this could go either... Who knows which way it's going to exactly, go? Who knows? So, this starts off in completely naff fashion. Henry Cavill is super spy Argyle, who's got a terrible suit and a terrible flat top that even I felt embarrassed about his hair. I mean, it made Vanilla Ice's hair choices look sensible. He's at a club. He meets a femme fatale, you know, incredibly glamorous. They dance, then they chase, and then, you know, she goes off on a motorbike and he's on a car, and the dialogue is terrible and the action is ludicrous and it's all rubbish, it's a book. Turns out it's being read to us by its author, Ellie Conway, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, Dallas House Prices. I didn't know anything about this before, so I did start watching the film thinking, this is Matthew Vaughan in terrible mode. But no, actually, it's somebody reading a piece of fiction, so deliberately terrible. She is shy and retiring in real life. She travels with her cat in a backpack. She stays out of relationships. She's on a train. A very, very handsome man comes up to her and says, oh, is this seat taken? She says, she looks at him and she says, no, no, it is taken. It is taken because she doesn't need anything else in her life. Next thing, a long-haired wastrel played by Sam Rockwell sits in the chair, starts reading a book. It's her book and he recognises her from the picture on the cover. Here's a clip. I am such a fan and this is honest to God. You're best yet. I'm not just saying it. I'm not. Oh, yeah? What is it you do? Espionage. Right. The greater the spy, the bigger the lie. Hmm. That's cheeky. Oh, not what you expected a spy to look like, huh? Well, yeah, in fairness, that is just about the only thing your books get wrong. A male model and a 
bespoke neurojagger with a stupid haircut. Tends to stand out on a train, as opposed to everyone else in this car. Them? You don't notice. Have I lost it? So what you don't see in the clip, you hear in the thing, is that when she's looking at him, suddenly she sees the face of Henry Cavill, who haunts her waking dreams. This is a character that she has made up, but appears to be talking to her. As for the wastrel, he turns out to be something else altogether, as does everyone else, including her. So this is written by Jason Fuchs, whose name is Jason Isaac Fuchs. Isn't that great? How do you spell his surname? F-U-C-H-S. Okay. I'm, I'm, no, no, you, you got it right. It's just, you know, it's yeah, complicated. Thank you. Yeah, okay, fine. But I think I got it right. Um, and who's clearly seen and enjoyed films like uh, The Long Kiss Goodbye, Long Kiss Goodnight, isn't it? And Jason Bourne. And uh, Matthew Vaughan says that this is his ode to action thrillers of the 80s, like Die Hard and Lethal Weapon. It isn't. It's nothing like any of those films. But frankly, that's no bad thing. It's a film in which... Of an author, and again, this is interesting because this is straight after having just talked about American fiction, who writes about, you know, super spy, mad worlds, suddenly finds himself in a world in which reality is madder than fiction. Everything goes from bad to completely nuts. And about 50 minutes in, I realized that I was really enjoying myself. Supporting roles by the likes of Sam Jackson, Brian Cranston, Catherine O'Hara, Julie, but Ariana DeBose, John Cena, Uncle Tom Cobley and all. But brilliantly... What doesn't make an appearance is the leeriness of Matthew Vaughan's previous works. It's just, it's almost like he grew up or he decided that that wasn't going to work. And none of that is there. And a lot of the reason I think the difference in tone is down to Bryce Dallas Howard, who is absolutely terrific in the central She wouldn't be having anything to do with that. Was my feeling entirely. And, And it's not there. As for... Matthew Vaughan, in the absence of all that stuff, all his pent-up, you know, energy goes into some genuinely funny sequences, including a finale. It starts with the sounds of Barry White, and there's a lot of kind of it slipping into dance. And the finale, which is oil, ice skating, shooty, exploding stuff everywhere, mad musical fantasia violence, I thought was really quite something. As I was going in to see the film, a fellow critic said to me, um, what do you make of the Taylor Swift thing? And I said, pardon? He said, what do you make of the Taylor Swift thing? I said, I, it's, I don't know anything about this film. Is Taylor Swift in this film? He said, no, but you know the thing about, there was all these rumours that Taylor Swift wrote the original book. I said, no, I don't know anything about this at all. So I googled it, and this is apparently, so when when it was said that they were doing this thing, nobody could find... They said Ellie Conway, who's the author in the thing, was the author of the original book. Nobody could find out who Ellie Conway was. The Hollywood Reporter was trying to find out. The internet being what it was, social media was trying to identify the author and figured out that it was probably Taylor Swift. If in doubt. If in doubt, it's Taylor Swift. And incidentally, I love Taylor Swift now. I mean, we all I'm, love Taylor, we all we, love Taylor Swift. We've, we are on record we're as Swifties. We are Swifties. Swifties and if and anyone tries to suggest that she's she's not, then we're probably going to take against yeah, them. Yeah, and anyone who is annoying the orange chimpanzee that much, good for her. Anyway, this is the most fun a Matthew Vaughan film has been for a very long time. Oh, very good. And it's, it's, it's out of control and ill-disciplined, but it's got some great sequences in it. I really like the central performances. Hats off to uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. Good use of pop music and demonstration that none of that awful, horrible 
leeriness was ever necessary. He never needed it. More of this, please, Matthew. And that is the end of Take One. This has been a Sony Music uh, Entertainment production. This week's team was Lily, Gully, Vicky, Zaki, Matty, Bethy, Michael Lee and Simony. Mark, what is your film of the week? Well, it's definitely the zone of interest. Remember to follow us on Letterboxd at Kermode and Mayo. Not Mark Kermode, just... Take two has arrived uh, at the same time. Loads of extra stuff, recommendations, bonus reviews. Take three on Wednesday. Thank you for listening. Listener.